That could have been better. There we go. They need to be better. Don't be satisfied with a mediocre high five. If something like that happens, just acknowledge that it happened and then go for it again. We're allowed to have good things in this life. And high fives number among those. That's probably a strange introduction for people here who don't know me. Hi, my name's Taylor. If I haven't met you yet, uh, I'm a part of the teaching team here for a little while longer at uh, Pullman Foursquare. Uh, I'm really grateful to, to have this, this opportunity to teach because I'm getting this out of the way early. This is uh, me and my family's last weekend here at Pullman Foursquare. Um, I don't boo. I mean, jeez. Okay. Um, <laughs> I guess, you know, booing that I'm leaving. That's nice, I suppose. Okay. It was an end around. We got there. Cool. Uh, it, it, for those who haven't heard, uh, I, I graduated with my MA in history from, from WSU, and I did get a, a job teaching history at a community college in the Phoenix area. Um, it, I don't like having to move again. We'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but all of my friends who were educators on any level who got their degrees in Washington and then refused to leave. It was this group of them at Western where I did my undergrad. I kid you not, they became professional IKEA furniture assemblers for like two years. Now, don't get me wrong. I love a nice klimpen or a humness as, as much as the next person. Audrey's just cringing back here at my pronunciation. But anyway, uh, I love that furniture as much as anybody, but it's just not what I want to do with my life. Uh, so to, to pursue this opportunity, uh, it does mean that we're moving, and I'm really glad to be teaching history at the collegiate level. It's, it's what I want to be doing. I love it. It's an incredible opportunity, and I'm going to use it as a platform to help people get to know God like I do with everything. That doesn't mean necessarily preaching in the classroom. For some reason, schools get weird when you do that, when you pull out a Bible and just start preaching, which I want to be clear. Like, I'm not, you know, trying to make some sort of subtle political point. That's fine. Like, I'm not about, you know, forcing the gospel on people who don't necessarily want to hear it in that moment. But what I don't like uh, is, is the fact that this means transitioning again to another community of faith. This is something that, that I and, and Sarah and I and now William, uh, our son, have, have had to do a number of times uh, over, over the course of, of my life following Jesus, which is relatively short. I only started following Jesus when I was about 18, so just going on about 10 years now. And... I've been really blessed, Sarah and I have been really blessed to be a part of some incredible communities. There's a few outliers. The, the one church that, it was the first church I went to when I got to Bellingham. The first service I went there, I got baptized at that church, and then I never went again. Because the guy who was giving me a ride just stopped going to church. And I was, you know, 18 and awkward and didn't know how to meet people. And so I just kind of did my thing for a little while. But outside of strange outliers like that, I and, and Sarah have been blessed with really great communities that were really difficult to leave. And Pullman Foursquare certainly counts in that number. You all have provided a phenomenal, godly community for, for Sarah, William, and me. And just to be clear, that is the correct usage of me in case anybody out there was worried. Should he have said, I know that was right, don't worry. <laughs> But you've provided a phenomenal community for us over the last two years, and, and you've done that. And I hope we'll continue to do that by living out God's teaching on community as we find it in Scripture and as he reveals to us today through his Holy Spirit. Whether you realize it or not, 
That's why this community or any community of the Lord's people works. Because it lives out God's teaching on what a community is supposed to look like. Hey, Richard, could you do me a favor and get me some hot water? I'm just kind of failing up here, or at least my mouth is. Thank you, my dude. That's why communities of the Lord's people work. And scripture has so much to teach on how communities are supposed to function. So much, in fact, that to me, it never seems like a bad idea to reflect back on that instruction, to let ourselves think again, how are God's communities supposed to function? How does scripture teach us to live as a community of God's people in this world? And that's how I came to what I wanted to discuss today in this final opportunity that I have to speak here. I'm going to go over just some of the passages that I think are, are most valuable when considering how a community is, is supposed to function. And, and let me be clear, this is not some sort of parting shot that I'm taking as I'm going out the door. I don't see myself as, thank you, sir, some great, oh, that's fine, uh, some great font of wisdom. I'm 28 years old. I've barely figured out how to live my own life. Um, it's, it takes longer these days, it seems like. I'm getting applause. I don't know if we should applaud that, that I'm 28. I've barely figured out how to live my own life. Uh, but what, what this is, spoiler alert, you know, if, if for the end of my message, so plug your ears if you want it to be a surprise. At the end of this message, I'm basically going to say, Pullman Foursquare, keep doing what you're doing. This is a community that lives out what it looks like to be an assemblage of God's people living in a godly way. But I think it's still good for us to take the opportunity to talk about how it is that we are to live. Because the world needs godly communities. Maybe now more than ever. For some reasons that I'll discuss a little bit at the end. The world needs godly communities. And I, saw, I thought it would be a good thing for us to reflect a little bit on what that looks like. Now, there are a lot of examples of, of godly communities throughout Scripture, some more directly related to, to our experience than others. One of the biggest ones, of course, is, is the people of Israel. You know, they're one of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament. I'm not going to talk about them a lot today for several reasons, one of them being they have a different kind of interaction with God than we do today. They're, they're operating under the law in a way that's different than how we do today. They had a different relationship with the Holy Spirit. So trying to look at them as a model of community gets tricky for us. Also because for much of Israel's history, they are living in a monarchical, monarchic, I think that's right, society. They're living under the rule of a monarch, a king in their case most of the time. And we're just not very familiar with that. So in the interest of time and not wanting to unpack all of those different levels, as much as I love to, a reminder, I will be teaching history in Phoenix. So, you know, but I won't go on. Uh, I want to look at a community from the New Testament today. It's still a different kind of society than ours. Don't get me wrong. You can't just plop Pullman into the middle of, you know, the Near East around the first century and things are just all going to be the same. But we share some really important commonalities with this community that we're going to look at. First and foremost we share the fact that we live in the wake of Jesus' death and resurrection. That more profoundly changed our relationship with God, with his creation, with each other, than, than I think we can fully understand as, as finite humans. I, I love doing impossible things. If you've heard me speak, you've, you've heard me mention that. Not doing, trying impossible things. So I'm never going to stop trying to understand 
just how much Jesus' death and resurrection has totally reoriented the way in which we interact with the world. But I don't think we'll quite ever be able to get it. We do share that, though, with this community that we're going to look at. And we also share the fact that this community had just recently received the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which has important implications for what we're going to talk about today. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 2. If you need a Bible, uh, there's some in a basket somewhere around here in the back um, where you can pop back and grab one of those if you would like, even just on your way out. Those are yours to keep if you want to grab one and hold on to that, and then you can have a Bible, which is a good thing to have. <coughs> Excuse me. So we're in Acts chapter 2. We're going to start off in verse 41. This is a, a, a description of one of the earliest communities of faith that could at some point call itself Christian, living after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and these believers, they're gathered in Jerusalem. And they're gathered in Jerusalem because Jesus commanded them right before he ascended to heaven after he rose from the dead. He commanded them to wait to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was going to provide them with power and they were supposed to stay and wait where they were until they received that power. So that's what they've been doing. And that power came on the day of Pentecost, where, where the Holy Spirit poured out his gifts and his empowerment upon this community. And we share access. We share that same access today to that power, to those gifts. And if you want to know more about that, you can head to our website. Somebody remind me what our website is. I'm bad with URLs. PullmanFoursquare.org. I wasn't sure what the dot was at the end there. PullmanFoursquare.org. You can head to our website and listen to the series that we just did uh, about spiritual gifts. It's not just cool because there's unicorns all over the title slide that we used for it. It's also cool because we talked about some really phenomenal content. I was blessed to be a part of that. Now, Peter, a little bit more context. Peter, one of Jesus' original disciples, after this empowerment from the Holy Spirit, has just delivered a message. After this, this crowd drew together and saw this early community of Christians exercising just some of the power that had been provided by the Holy Spirit. He gives this message, and we're picking up this passage in the back half of verse 41, right as Peter's wrapping this up. So those who received Peter's word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's 3,000 more people coming into this new community of God. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now we could spend an entire series unpacking this message. I've seen it done, where people have just spent months just walking through these, these few verses. We don't have time to do that today, and for now, I, I want to start with an important recognition to kind of contextualize everything I'm going to say about this passage. This community is only possible 
because of the miracle working power of God. Communities of people without God's help are almost never this generous, this sacrificial. I believe there could be instances of, of, you know, non-Christian communities out there in the world being this generous, but I would be stunned if there was any large number of them. The miracle working power of God is much more often than not necessary for this kind of community to exist and especially to be sustained. I had an interesting experience with this, with the miraculous nature of this community when I was a pastor at Central Washington University. That's what I did before I came here to WSU. I was at Central for five years as a pastor. And I got to know one student. He wasn't a Jesus follower. Thankfully, I, that was where I got to spend a lot of my time, was with people who didn't follow Jesus. Hanging out with people who don't share your same worldview is a really good thing to do and a phenomenal use of your time. So if you're not doing it already, I heartily encourage it. I got to know this student And we'd known each other for the better part of two years. And this guy, he had started to come on retreats with us, with our ministry, like going away for a weekend with all these weird Jesus people to, you know, sing and hear teaching and all these things. At one retreat, he actually like took some quiet time and prayed. And as he described it, he's convinced that he received a vision from the Holy Spirit. Like, this guy had supernatural experiences. He regularly attended our small group, and we had discussed scripture backwards and forwards over the course of these couple years. But this student, in the time that I knew him, never decided to follow Jesus. He could never get to that point of making that decision. Because of this passage... He got over so many hurdles and and issues and problems and questions that he had with, with the content of Scripture, with the character of God, with what it meant to follow Jesus. But this, the idea that a community could act with such unselfish abandon, that a community could be so generous that people could deny their self interest this much was what made him decide, at least in the period that I knew him, that he couldn't trust Scripture. This was too unbelievable for him. This guy was an economist by training, and in his mind, self-interest was the fundamental assumption that made the world work. You could always count on people to be self-interested. And so when he read a passage in Scripture that showed a community not doing that, he couldn't wrap his head around it. It was too impossible a thing for him to consider. He couldn't believe that people actually acted this way, which is precisely why it is so important the communities of God's people live out this kind of radical generosity. Seeing something unbelievable makes people pay attention. It opens opportunities for the Holy Spirit to minister to someone's heart for him to challenge their doubts, for him to reveal himself more fully. And it might not result in a person following Jesus right there in that moment, but frankly, that's not really our concern. We're not checking tallies of people that we've gotten to follow Jesus. That's not what we're called to do. Our concern as a community of God's people must always be to live in a Christ-like fashion as we are called with persistence and perseverance regardless of whatever tangible results might show up in front of us in a particular moment. We are called to live godly lives. 
And part of that means living out radical generosity. The world needs more of this kind of radical generosity. And God's communities, because of his teaching and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit, I think are the best avenue to bring that into the world. But even when godly communities live out this this radical generosity, everything doesn't always go according to plan. Anybody who's been, even in a great church for a period of time, knows that in any assemblage of people, conflict will inevitably arise. Even and sometimes especially in communities devoted to Jesus. The reason for that especially is, is because the work that, God, that communities of godly people do does not go unopposed. By bringing more love and generosity and more of God into the world, it, that faces resistance. It faces resistance from Satan, who is the enemy of God. And so, especially in really healthy churches, you can see conflict come up again and again and again. And the question becomes, how does that community deal with that conflict? Responding to conflict, according to the teachings of Jesus, provides one of the single greatest blessings this world could ever hope for the possibility of actual reconciliation. When communities resolve conflict in a godly fashion as we're taught by Scripture, it provides the opportunity for actual reconciliation, which is something that is rare enough today in our society that I wonder if all of us in this room have ever actually seen it. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some among us who don't know what it looks like for two people or a community or a family to be actually reconciled after an especially serious wrong has been committed. It's that rare. The passage that I think most clearly demonstrates how God's people are supposed to handle conflict comes from Matthew 18, starts in verse 15. So if you're in Acts, you're flipping to the left now. Well, I guess that would be this way, technically. Uh, Flipping to the left to find Matthew chapter 18. This is where we see our example of what it looks like for a community to resolve conflict in a godly fashion, something that I think is so, so important to what the church needs to be doing in the world today. So this is me reading from Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've been reconciled. But if he does not listen, Take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen then, or to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What that means there is, treat him as you would someone who isn't following God. It's, it's what it's trying to get at there. Treat them as somebody who essentially isn't a member of the community. That, that doesn't mean you're necessarily kicking them out. People who don't follow Jesus should always be welcome in communities of God's people. But scripture is very particular about ways in which we deal with people who are following Jesus and ways in which we deal with people who aren't in terms of how we interact with them, how we address sin in their lives, how we deal with disciplinary issues. So you're treating them differently as a result of this. You're not kicking them out. You're just treating them differently. Verse 18. Jesus again, Truly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. In case you're not aware, we are gathered in God's name, and he is very much among us here. One of the most interesting things about this passage to me is actually what surrounds it. What's on either end of it. Immediately before this passage, Jesus shares this famous parable in which God, exemplified in the parable as a shepherd, leaves 99 faithful sheep who have stayed close to the shepherd to go and seek after one that has gone astray. We were just singing about this. In, in a song earlier, this idea that, that God passionately and fervently and ferociously seeks after those who are lost in his great, great love. That's what comes immediately prior to this passage. And immediately following, just in case that you thought Jesus had kind of like drifted off onto some weird tangent when he starts talking about where two or more are gathered in my name, Peter demonstrates that that's not the case. Peter asks Jesus how many times he should forgive a brother who has sinned against him. What he's doing there is he's directly following up on what Jesus says about how you're supposed to deal with an instance in which somebody in a community has sinned against another person, introducing conflict into that scenario. So what do we make of this? What I draw from this context, the context of this passage, is that Jesus sees healthy confrontation and the resolution of of sin and conflict within a community of his people as directly related to two things. First, the salvation of the lost. And second, creating a welcoming place for God to indwell. Without healthy conflict resolution within a community of God's people, people who don't know God aren't going to come to know him in his saving grace. And I think God is going to have a much harder time in dwelling that community and speaking what he wants to speak to that community and doing what he wants to do in and through that community. That's how essential good conflict resolution is to a community of God's people. And outside of the context of these words that we read, the passage itself carries intense weight in our society, or it should. If biblical generosity, what we read about in the community in Acts, is radical to our culture, then godly confrontation and conflict resolution is downright revolutionary. It blows the walls off of how our society is structured. And I didn't realize just how revolutionary this was until I transitioned out of ministry and back into academia. Not all ministries are like this, I recognize. But when I was at Central Washington University, our staff team dealt with conflict phenomenally. We spoke openly. We didn't hedge around issues. We were careful with our words so that we weren't unnecessarily harsh as we addressed conflict. If we thought somebody was intentionally ducking an issue, trying really hard not to have a conversation about some conflict on, we gently and lovingly tried to draw that out so that we could actually resolve conflict as Scripture calls us to do so. And this was in part a product of of the culture of our ministry network, this bigger organization that we were a part of. Uh, It was part of the Assemblies of God, which is another kind of Pentecostal 
denomination. And I'm going to tell a story here. I don't mean to, it might sound like I'm trying to kind of air the assembly's dirty laundry on this issue. That's not what I'm doing. I wish that all communities of God's people could deal with conflict as well as I saw in this particular instance. What happened was a high-level officer in the the network administration of this denomination, so they're in charge of overseeing all of the churches in the area, had, had fallen into an issue of sin and needed to be removed from this position because of it. He came and confessed this to to the other officers, and, and they took the very biblical step of saying, okay, you need to step down from leadership for a while while we deal with this. So a special election had to be held. This is a little nitty-gritty, but I promise I'm getting to the point. You have to have a special election to put somebody new into this position. Well, at this special election, I'm there. I'm going to vote, but I don't necessarily know the details of what's going on. They're explaining the procedure, and, and a guy who I'm later told has something of a reputation for being a bit of a rabble-rouser comes up to the mic. There's an open mic, because this is, you know, we're having this very democratically. People are sharing what they think about the issue. Comes up to the mic and just goes on a rant about how we shouldn't be doing any of this, and there's no bylaws that allow us to have this kind of election, and none of you who are in authority here are in the right, and this is completely despicable, and we're not doing what God wants us to do here, and this is an embarrassment upon the assemblies. And people are doing that thing that happens when somebody starts making one of these rants where they're all just kind of like, oh, suddenly I have 17 text messages. Let me just you know, go through my phone here. And you know, fervently trying to look at anything besides this one guy. And the, the person who's presiding over the meeting says, we appreciate your comment. Uh, we, we are going to move forward with these proceedings, but we want you to know that you know we're hearing what you're saying. And as he's making this comment, kind of trying to get people back on track, this guy comes over. He's uh, from across the auditorium. He's walking with this giant binder. He's carrying it in like two hands. It's this huge binder. Apparently, it's all the bylaws for, for the assemblies. And he walks over, and he starts going through it page by page with this guy. And they're talking really intensely and really fervently. And it's like, wow, this is the most intense conversation about bylaws I've ever seen. <laughs> And they're going through it, they're going through it, they're going through it. And meanwhile, the conversation goes on and people are sharing opinions. But a half hour later, this guy, the guy with the reputation, comes up to the microphone again. And he says, I need to apologize. I was wrong. I thought I knew what the rules were. I've been corrected by my brother. I made this harder than it needed to be. This is already a hard moment for us, and I need to ask for this community's forgiveness. And the whole room blows up in applause. Because that's what a godly community looks like. In so many other communities, that never would have gotten addressed. It would have become the thing that people were posting about on Facebook or tweeting about or talking about. Oh my gosh, did you hear what such and such or so and so did? But instead... Not even an hour goes by. And a guy comes to the mic, recognizes that he was in the wrong because he was confronted, not publicly. The guy running the meeting didn't tear him down and make an example of him. One person came over and gently and lovingly corrected this guy's misconception. And he immediately, without missing a beat, seeks forgiveness from that community that was gathered. I think that's what godly conflict resolution looks like. That's what I was used to. Then I transitioned back into academia, and 
I, I think this applies more broadly just to our culture at large. I happen to be in academia. There's nothing special about the way in which universities handle conflict. I think you'd find this in just about any organization, most businesses. I, I was stunned. I was speechless, which if you know me at all is a feat at some of the things that people would, would share in quiet conversations over a drink when they thought nobody was listening that they said behind closed office doors about other people without ever asking if it was true. Without ever going to the person who had supposedly committed this horrible act or said this horrible thing and, and checking if any of it had any basis in reality without ever checking on that. They shared it and the person who was hearing it took it didn't do any fact-checking of their own and just passed it right along to whoever else was willing to listen at the next opportunity. And honestly, it made me really, really sad. People were willing to, to believe things that others had, had said or done, absolutely awful things, just because somebody said that they did them without ever actually going and talking to the person, having the basic level of human care to see if any of this was ever true. And I think it's tempting to, to pass off this sort of thing as, as, as innocuous gossip, but that's just simply false. The kind of things that can get said behind closed doors or, or, or over a drink, and I'm not blaming alcohol here. It doesn't matter if it's seltzer water or gin that's being drinking here. What matters is the topic of the conversation. It, passing off certain kinds of incorrect assumptions and accusations, it, it ends careers. It ruins marriages. It rips families apart. And it happens because the way in which our culture deals with conflict is by not dealing with it. It's by having these tiny, quiet conversations and watching it like it's a reality show. We don't deal with conflict anymore. We've made it, and the gossip that goes along with it, a, a source of entertainment. Maybe worst of all, when God's people participate in this, it keeps people from embracing the saving grace of God. When people come to God for the first time, as many of us have at some point, with their sin and pain and doubt and fear, hoping and trying to leave those things at the foot of the cross and to give them up to God and to trust in his saving grace, if they don't trust that a community of God's people will show grace and care in its handling of that sin, they walk right back out the door. Because what they've seen, what they've heard, is God's people talking about these dark, painful things that all of us have had to bring to the foot of the cross. And they think, am I the next one on the list? Am I the next one to get talked about in that way? And they go right back out the door because they don't trust that a community of God's people will love them as they're trying to work that out and approach them as Scripture instructs when they're still trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. How many of us, after we followed Jesus for the first time, managed to never sin again? I certainly haven't. And I'm incredibly grateful for the people who have come to me lovingly and privately and told me, Taylor, you're, you're off in this way and you need to course correct a little bit. And I don't want to blow you up in front of everybody. I'm not going to make a big deal about this in small group, but I need you to adjust this now before it becomes a bigger issue. 
showing me that love in that moment so I could learn a little bit more about what it means to follow Jesus. And having people do that again and again and again and again has brought me to where I am today. And it is an incredible display of God's love. Biblical conflict management is an incredible display of God's love. And God teaches us how to resolve conflict not just for ourselves, but for all those watching us. Those outside the church need to see God's people handling sin and conflict in godly ways. Their very soul might depend on it. Living as as a godly community, it, it brings with it all kinds of blessings. Radical generosity, revolutionary honesty, and, and so many more. And my favorite passage on what a community can be like kind of wraps up all of those blessings. And it's the one I want to close on today. It's Psalm 133. It's in the Old Testament, so you'll flip way, way, way to the left uh, in, in your Bible to find it. But I'll read it here and we'll have it behind me as well. If you want to turn there so you can keep looking at it as we're talking, feel free. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for, where, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Now, I understand that a lot of us might not know the nuances of, of this passage. What's, what's the deal with this oil? What's with the dew? And what's Herman outside of, you know, an unfortunate name that, that some people sometimes give to their children? Uh, it, it, I'm sorry if we have any Hermans here. I didn't even think about that. You're loved by God. Um, it, really what this passage is saying is that a godly community is a place that God blesses. Abundantly and fruitfully and generously and beyond what we could ever hope to imagine. That's what godly communities are. I actually have a buddy of mine who I lived with for a few years made a poster of this first line, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. He made it with this really cool like hand letter press printer. He was a graphic design major and I was going to bring it to show everybody and then I realized it along with 95% of everything else I own is in a U-Haul trailer in Phoenix right now. So that didn't necessarily work out. But besides that, this is one of my favorite passages on community because when God's people dwell in unity, God makes that community a place of blessing. He blesses it, certainly, but he also makes it a place of blessing. When God's people live as he would have them live together, he blesses them and makes them a blessing to those around them. And our world needs this blessing. Places that abound in God's blessing bring healing to wounds that at times can't be seen or intentionally covered over by the person experiencing them. A while ago, I gave a message where I talked about how my hope and my prayer is that I would never have to give another message where I talked about one more dead kid who was killed in a school shooting. I know nothing about the life of this student 
who killed eight of his classmates and two of his teachers in Santa Fe. I know nothing about this guy. I don't know if he had a godly community in his life. But I know that the more of God there is, the less likely it is that we have to wake up to another story of more dead kids. I know that. And that's what godly communities do. They bring more of God into the world. That's what Pullman Foursquare does. It can continue to do. You bring more of God into Pullman, Washington. And through those who go out from here, whether the missionaries that we've sent out in peace ships or the me that we sent out in a beat-up Toyota Corolla to the Phoenix area, through those people, you take it from Pullman and send that love into the rest of the world. So what I want to say in closing in this moment is keep doing what you're doing, Pullman Foursquare. You have profoundly blessed Sarah, William, and me. And again, that is the correct version of me in case you're still worried about that. You have profoundly blessed us while we were here. And I am confident that you will do the same for whoever walks through those doors. As a final word, I want to offer a very slight adjustment on the first chapter of Philippians. I think it's really fitting that Paul opened his book and that I get to close this message with just a a word of thanksgiving for a community that had been such a blessing to him and had supported him so profoundly. And I don't know if I got this on a slide. So Philippians is way to the right in your Bible, but if you can't find it, just listen to these words, please. I will thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment, which I guess was kind of graduate school, was an imprisonment of sort, and, more importantly, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Thank you so much for blessing Sarah and William and me in the way that you have over these years. I am very, very confident that you will continue to do the same. Thanks. Thanks.